And we're going to continue in our worship together this morning as we read and we teach from the Old Testament book of Judges. So if you've got a Bible, you want to grab one of the Bibles from one of the tray tables, we're going to continue in our series through the book of Judges. And this morning, we're going to pick up the story in Judges chapter 3. So as you make your way there, let me, let me ask you a favor this morning. Would you be willing this morning to begin our time together with a moment of honesty? And a moment of honesty amongst God's people. You should have the courage to, to ask yourself this, and I won't make you raise your hand or stand up, at least not yet. Ask yourself this. If you're honest with yourself, are there times, are there moments, or if you're really willing to be honest with yourself, are there seasons in your life when the news and the reality of what God has done for you through his son, who God is for you in his son, and all that God has promised for you in his son doesn't leave you standing in amazement. If you're a follower of Christ and you're here this morning, are you willing to be honest with yourself this morning and say that there are times and quite possibly even seasons in your life when what we call the gospel doesn't leave you amazed? doesn't leave you in awe. The reality and the news of your salvation and of your Savior, if you're really honest, can actually seem expected. Maybe a bit of entitlement creeping up in there. But whatever it is, you don't find yourself amazed. I confess that I gather with you more times than I probably would ever want to admit if I had the courage to be honest with all of you this morning and can stand here with you and sing and even sing lyrics like, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the, the Nazarene, and my mind can go yes and amen. I can know that what I'm saying is true and I can know that what I'm saying I believe, but if I'm really honest with you, there's not a shred of amazement in my heart. I'm not actually amazed at my salvation or with my Savior. So if you're honest this morning, maybe you are willing to admit that there are times, maybe even seasons, when the gospel seems to have lost its wonder. Milton Vincent wrote a fantastic book I would encourage everyone in here to get. It's called The Gospel Primer. It's a small book, but in the beginning of that book, he says this, the gospel is so foolish according to my natural wisdom, so scandalous according to my conscience, and so incredible according to my timid heart that it is a daily battle to believe the full scope of the gospel as I should. There's simply no other way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my heart, and the lies of the world and the devil than to overwhelm such things with the daily rehearsing of the gospel. The forebodings of your conscience, the condemning nature of your heart, the lies of the world and the devil together scheme to leave you standing in the presence of your salvation and your Savior and not be amazed. 
not be at all at just how unexpected and undeserved they both are. Friends, there's few things as tragic as a loss of amazement and wonder and awe at the nature of your salvation and with your Savior. And this morning, as we pick up the book of Judges and continue in our journey through this book, I I want you to understand that one of God's principal intentions for the book of Judges and for the stories that we're going to encounter in there, one of his principal intentions is to leave you standing in amazement, standing in wonder at your salvation and with your Savior. If it's begun to seem expected, if it's begun to feel anticipated, if it's begun to feel deserved, God intends for the book of Judges to shake you out of that, that you might stand for the first time or the first time in a long time amazed at the unexpected and entirely undeserved nature of your salvation and with the unexpected nature of your Savior. So this morning, I get the privilege of walking with you through one of the most unexpected stories in the entire Bible, and it's in the book of Judges. But before we do that together, let's, let's ask the Lord to do what only He could do, to open up the eyes of our heart, to, to help us to see, to expose to us from His Word what it is that's to lead us to this amazement with Him. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank You for the time that we have this morning. We thank you that we know that you can do more in the time that we have here than we could ever accomplish in a lifetime. And so this morning, Lord, we ask that you would do the miracle that only you can do by your Holy Spirit together with your word, that you would leave us standing for the first time or the first time in a long time, amazed and in awe at the absolutely unlikely and undeserved nature of our salvation, and that we would stand in awe and amazed at the nature of our Savior. And we ask that you would do that in his name, for his glory, and for our joy. Amen. So if you've got your Bible, Judges chapter 3, we're going to pick up the story in verse 7. And we're going to see what God has for us in his word this morning. Verse 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now here's what they did. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. Now, if you were with us last week, this is going to sound familiar to you. If you weren't with us last week, this is the cycle that we're going to see over and over again through the book of Judges. God's people are suffering from what you could call a spiritual amnesia. They had forgotten the Lord, and it wasn't so much that they had forgotten information about Him. It wasn't that they had forgotten His name. It wasn't they had forgotten the the realities of the stories of what he had done for them in the past and what he had promised to do for them in the present. It's the fact that those things no longer influenced them. They no longer shaped them. When God's people forget the Lord and find themselves serving the gods of their land and the gods of their culture, it's not that they somehow became atheists all of a sudden and no longer knew things about God. It's that their hearts are now divided. And this is what was happening with God's people. They know his name. They know his promises. They know what he's done. 
They continue to gather together to hear the stories of his work amongst their forefathers, but their hearts are divided, and now they find themselves not only worshiping him, but worshiping the gods of Canaan. It's a divided worship. And friends, if we're going to begin the process of standing amazed for the first time or the first time in a long time with the nature of our salvation and with our Savior, we're going to have to be honest with ourselves and recognize just how similar to the people of Israel we really are. They find themselves at a point where they have forgotten God and they have compromised at heart and they are giving themselves over to the truths about who God is, even gathering continually with God's people, holding tight to that, but yet at the same time with their hearts and with their lives, worshiping the gods of their day. Friends, you and I are going to have to own just how similar we are in kind to God's people then. How familiar it is for us to, to hold tight to the habits of our religion to the patterns of our religion, to the doctrine of our faith, and even to the ethical and moral standards of our faith, yet with our heart, give ourselves over to the promises of the gods of our day. Friends, Israel found themselves forgetting the Lord. And that spiritual amnesia, that compromise of heart led to a life of idolatry. And just as the Lord promised in verse eight, we see that his anger was kindled against them. And so here's what happens. Verse 8 says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. Eight years. Idolatry, spiritual amnesia, giving way to this kind of decay and idolatry in heart, leads to the judgment of God. And 12 times we're going to see this cycle in the book of Judges, and God is going to judge them by giving them over to the kings of the day, the kings of the land to oppress them. And this time, in this story, God gives his people over to a king, Cushan Rishathim, whose name literally means king wicked, wicked. That's what it means. So when people of Israel hear the book of Judges read as they gather together, what they hear is that God's people have been given over to king wicked, wicked, king double wickedness. That's what it means. And they serve king double wickedness for eight years. See, their idolatry, their, their compromise, their divide at heart, their, their pursuing of God with one hand while pursuing the gods of the day with the other hand, hoping that somewhere in the middle what it is they want and what it is they think they need will actually come. It hasn't led to their freedom. It hasn't led to their flourishing. It's actually read, led to their oppression. And so there's the irony God's people have been set free by the hand of God from slavery, brought to the land that he promised, and they find themselves oppressed now by the people of the day in the land that was to be theirs. One writer writing about this, helping us try to see ourselves in what's happening, he says, let us remember that Israel's flirtation with other gods, it came from their over-domestication of the living Lord. It was because they thought that they had God all sewn up and neatly put in their pocket. His unbreakable promises led them to presume upon his mercy to the point of indulgence. They thought they had God in a box. They thought that they had trained God. That's always the essence of compromise and idolatry. Friends, this is the same thing that you and I struggle with. This is what leads to the forgetfulness. This is what leaves us standing face to face with the news of our salvation and with our Savior. And 
and not find any sense of amazement at the unexpected and undeserved nature of either. This is what was happening with Israel. So in verse 9, we read, when when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And again, we want to be careful every time we come across this in the book of Judges that we don't misread it. Especially those of us who are familiar with the church, who are familiar with the gospel, who, who have heard various things unpacked from various angles, we like to read into this something that isn't actually there. The people of Israel were suffering under the hand of king double wickedness, and after eight years, they cry out to the Lord, but they're not repenting. They're not crying out to the Lord in repentance, broken over their idolatry, broken over their sin, turning from the gods of Canaan, turning back to the Lord so that the Lord would see their repentance and reward them with a deliverer. That's not what's happening at all. God's people are suffering under the hand of King Double Wickedness and their life is hard. And they're crying out because life is hard. And they're being oppressed. And it's in that pain and in that oppression, not in repentance, that God hears the cries of his people when he sends them a deliverer. Don't move too too fast past that. God wasn't rewarding them with deliverance. The compassion and the love of God was giving his people what they didn't deserve. God was under no obligation to his people to deliver them from their pain. You see, the way back to amazement, if we're going to take a first step, if you, if you were honest at all with yourself and, and recognize that there are times, maybe even right now, where you know the news of your salvation and the nature of your Savior, but you don't find yourself at all amazed by either, one of the first steps back is to just stop and recognize. For the first time in a long time, God's mercy to you in the first place. How absolutely unexpected and undeserved your deliverance really is. We're going to see it even more clearly as we go through the story. The mercy of God. He raises up for his people a deliverer. A deliverer named Othniel. Now, Othniel was already known by God's people. If you were with us last week or you've read the book of Judges before, you can go back to chapter one where we first meet Othniel. Othniel is from the tribe of Judah. He was the nephew of one of Judah's, I mean, one of Israel's most famous living people. If Israel had a living hall of fame, there was one man left at the top of it and his name was Caleb. Caleb was one of the spies who, along with Joshua, went to look at the promised land before God's people went there and came back with a good report and said, you know what? We can do it. God can give them over to us. The rest of the spies said, no way. For his confidence in God's promise, God allowed Caleb to live through into the occupation of the land to see God give the hand of the peoples in the promised land to his people. So Caleb is this living legend in the life of God's people. And he says, whoever goes and conquers this area of land that was promised to me in chapter one, I'll give my daughter to them as a reward. And that's where we meet Othniel, his nephew from the same family who goes and conquers this people and gets Caleb's daughter as his wife. 
Othniel, the man who stepped up in the face of this people and went and led people to, to get this victory, the man that had the skills, the military acumen, the courage to go do it from the perfect family. If there was a pedigree that you were going to write for God's people, Israel, it was to be from the tribe of Judah, related to Caleb at this point, with the ability to go and do this, and that's Othniel. When God raises up a deliverer for his people in the midst of their suffering and oppression, he gives them Othniel. And the spirit of the Lord, verse 10 says, was upon him. And he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cush and Rishathim double wickedness into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cush and Rishathim. So the land had rest for 40 years. How long were they oppressed? Remember? Eight years. Don't miss the grace of God. He gives them 40 years of rest through the hand of Othniel. Othniel is exactly what Israel and you and I would expect. If we're going to write the story and we talk about someone setting someone free, delivering God's people from oppression, from the rule of a tyrant, double wickedness, you're going to get Othniel, the perfect family, the perfect skills, the confidence, the courage. Gold star soldier from a Medal of Honor family. That's him. That's what we expect. And it seems like as we read the story, if you're honest, in your mind, the die is kind of being set for what this is going to look like when the cycle repeats itself and God's people find themselves again in oppression and God raises up a deliverer. In fact, the book of the chapter, chapter three, ends with something kind of similar. Another judge is raised up by God to deliver his people. Now, he doesn't have the pedigree that Othniel has, but we could at least admit, if we're honest, we would admire him in the same way we admire Othniel and look to him as a deliverer the same way we would expect to look to Othniel. It's in verse 31. It's one verse. This guy gets one verse. His name's Shamgar. Shamgar was raised up by God to deliver his people. And do you know what he did? He took a seven-foot staff that had a hand-hewn bone or sharp edge on the end of it that was used by farmers to herd ox. It was called an ox goad. That's how you would move those big, enormous animals in crowds around. He took an ox goad and killed 600 Philistines by himself. Now, he didn't have the name that Othniel had, but he certainly had the capacity, the skill, the courage, and the ability. So you and I, if we're thinking, what's it going to look like? What, what do we expect? This is what we expect. But the reality of it is, if you just look at your paper and you just look at your Bible, chapter three isn't weighted towards Othniel or Shamgar. Chapter three is weighted towards this guy in the middle that takes up the majority of the space whose name is Ehud. Look at verse 12. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. So King Eglon actually built a coalition against Israel. It wasn't just he and his people. He went and got other peoples. He built a large group to go against Israel. And here's what they did. They took possession of the city of Palms. They took possession of Jericho, the first place that God handed over to his people on the way to the promised land. Remember the story? March around Jericho, toot your horns, the walls fall down. Now this coalition has come back and taken them in that land. And the people served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years now. 
from eight years now to 18 years. But then, verse 15, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Now, we have expectations, right? Othniel, Judah, Caleb, warrior, courageous, leader. God raised up a man named Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a left-handed man. Well, the writer is giving you a whole host of information in that one description. That's very important for understanding why Ehud gets all the focus in the middle of the chapter. Judah is how the book started. Judah, the tribe of Judah, goes and leads with his brother Simeon to conquer all these peoples and all this land throughout the highlands and the lowlands and along the waterways. Judah was just taking names everywhere he went. And then you get to verse 21 of chapter 1. And Judah defeats another land that God had given into his hand. And then we meet the Benjamites. The Benjamites squandered the victories of Judah and they lived with the people in the land. Judah went and did what God had said in the beginning to go and to take the land to defeat the peoples. We meet Benjamin and Benjamin is just settling with the peoples. Ehud isn't from the line of Judah. Ehud is a Benjamite. Othniel is from the line of Judah. Ehud's from the line of Benjamin. Not only does he come from a compromising family, but he's a compromised man. He's left-handed. Now, what that literally means is that he did not have the use of his right hand. He's not just distinguishing that he was left-dominant over right-dominant. What it actually means is he didn't have use of his right hand, and that's enormous. Because what that means in his day is that he could not be a soldier He could not be a warrior. You've seen it played out in all the movies. You carry your shield in your left hand, your sword in your right hand, so that when you went out to battle and you had formations, defensive formations, or even aggressive formations with other soldiers, you laid your shields over each other to form an impenetrable wall. Ehud could not do that because he couldn't carry a sword. All he had was his left hand. So he couldn't be a warrior. So here God's people are under the oppression for 18 years from King Eglon, the Moabites, and the coalition of people, and God raises up someone who couldn't fight from the compromising tribe of Benjamin. He's not from Judah. He's not like Othniel. He's not what you'd expect at all. And that's the point. That's the point. He's an entirely unexpected deliverer. And what he's asked to do is meant to to compound this unexpected shame and unexpected nature that you find with Ehud. And you find out in verse 15 that the people of Israel sent a tribute to King Eglon by the hands of Ehud. So Othniel, the the perfect man, the, the perfect deliverer from the tribe of Judah related to Caleb, leads God's people in battle over King Double Wickedness, but Ehud from the tribe of Benjamin which literally means son of my right hand, gives us a compromised, disabled, left-handed man who's going to carry a gift to the oppressive king and bow down before him. That's what's happening. So how did Ehud prepare himself? He made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. I have no idea how a one-handed man made his own sword. 
It's determination, though. He made an eight-inch-long, double-edged sword. And a very important detail is given to you. He straps that thing to his right thigh. Do you know why he strapped it to his right thigh? Because he's left-handed. A right-handed soldier would strap his knife to his left thigh so he could reach in and get it. A left-handed man would strap it to his right thigh. But you know what? Every time they'd go to see the king or any important place where there would be attendance and security, what are they checking for? They're checking for a sword on the left thigh, a right-handed man. A left-handed man poses no danger because they don't carry swords. They don't carry knives. He who prepares to do the job that's put before him by fashioning a sword and It's not at all what you would expect. He's an entirely unexpected deliverer, which stands to reason that the deliverance that God is going to achieve for his people is going to be an absolutely unexpected and undeserved deliverance. Look at verse 17. Ehud goes and he presents the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, read it like a human. You've got to understand when a party would go to bring the tribute, bring the gift, whatever it was, whether it was a, an amount of food, an amount of livestock, amount of gold, amount of whatever it was that the king would require that the people that he had subjected bring to him to then express their willingness to serve him, this was Ehud's job. And he did what he was supposed to do. And here's the thing, when a king would have subject, subjected people come and bring gifts to him, he would humiliate them in any manner of ways. It wasn't like Ehud and the people of Israel brought the tribute to the door and knocked on the door, left it at the doorstep and walked away. The king would make them come in and bow down, maybe kiss his feet. Who knows what all things the king would make him do? That was Ehud's job. Othniel gets to defeat king double wickedness. Ehud gets to bow down and kiss the feet of the king. But the writer tells us something that's going to play a role in the story. Eglon, this king that Ehud had to bring this tribute to, he was a very fat man. Now, the language there conveys an emphasis and and an idea, and the emphasis is simply this. You're meant to see a man who is large beyond belief. That's what it's saying. He was a man whose size was beyond your ability to imagine. It came from, from taking the spoils of the people that he had subjected. He was so large, Eugene Peterson, in writing his translation with the message, actually makes reference to Jabba the Hutt. This is the weight of the language. So in Hebrew, you would have heard something akin to that kind of image in your mind when you heard this description. His name, Eglon, in Hebrew, sounds exactly like the word for cow. So the people of Israel were were kind of making a slight at him and writing this and, and finding humor in this as they're going along. But at the same time, you're also seeing how unexpected Ehud is in the whole thing. Again, remember, Othniel, the perfect and expected deliverer, he gets to defeat wicked, wicked. Ehud gets to bow down to King Cal. In verse 18, when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, whatever that involved, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. So all the king's guards, all the king's attendants, when when Ehud said, I have a message for you, the king said, everybody be quiet, and you guys leave. Now you know something about the story the king doesn't know, so that sounds like an absolutely foolish decision, doesn't it? But don't forget, what was Ehud aside from being a Benjamite? 
He was a left-handed man. He was a disabled man. No one expects him to pose any kind of threat at all to anybody. They're probably surprised that he came along with the tribute. So the king says, I got to hear the message. Everybody leave. Leave me alone with this man. So verse 20, Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Now, twice he said it, right? So I've got a message for you, and the king sends everybody away. Now I've got a message from God for you. Now, that's really important because of what happens next. If someone comes prophetically with a message from the divine for you, the only right and proper thing to do is stand up and hear it. But remember, he's an extremely large man. He's not just going to hop up from his seat, is he? It's going to take him some effort to get to his feet. That's why Ehud said what he said. And as Eglon is trying to get to his feet, he exposes his belly. He can't quite get up as quick as you and I might be able to get up. Verse 21 says, Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and no detail is spared at all. The dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. You got to read that like a human. You know the king went into his cool chamber with an attendant, with someone else to give him a message, right? The king is behind closed doors getting a message from someone, but all of a sudden time goes by and you hear the most painful groaning sounds. The man was stabbed in the stomach. It, was, it wasn't silent. So you're outside the door and you know your king's in there with someone from, from Israel and, and he's groaning and he's making all these crazy noises and then you get the smell. Your king is in there going through a very uncomfortable situation with someone else in there, but should we spare him the dignity? Should we go in there and get him? I mean, who's going to draw straws on going in there? They're embarrassed for the king. They don't actually know what's happening. And so it says, when they still didn't open the doors of the chamber, the attendants, they took a key and they opened them, and there lay their lord dead on the floor. Ehud had escaped while they delayed and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Serah. Now, there's something you've got to understand there. Because there's something that's always confused me until I read a, a book and getting ready for the sermon that went into a little more detail. There's something that I was always confused by in this story that I just kind of gave away to historical reality that I just wouldn't understand. And that was how do you lock the doors from a porch on the outside so that someone on the inside can't get out? Do your doors work that way? Do you lock your doors from the outside so that someone on the inside can't get out? My image has always had Ehud going out on this porch like I might have in my house, locking doors and shimmying down the porch, getting to the street and getting out. Well, that's not what happened. In this cool chamber, there would be a closet where another throne would be that the king would use to relieve himself when he needed to relieve himself. And what would happen is he would go and sit on that throne and the excrement would go down into a closet right below him where his servants would come and clean it out as needed. What the literal translation of this actually says exposes what actually happened. And it's important for understanding the bigger implications. It, it literally says, as he's stuck in the 
the, the knife and even the fat closed over the hilt, the excrement exited. And then Ehud also exited through the lower janitorial closet, having closed the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. Ehud went down through the toilet. Ehud was Andy Dufresne, for those who have seen Shawshank Redemption. Straight through the filth into the lower closet that would have been cleaned out whenever the king had to use the chamber. So he locked the doors, went down the septic system, and escaped. They delayed. Ehud fled. When he arrived at Sarah, verse 27, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader, the left-handed, compromised, disabled Benjamite who crawled through the septic system of the king is now leading God's people. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites. They didn't allow anyone to pass over, and they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites. Note, all strong, able-bodied men. The compromised, left-handed Benjamite crawling through the septic system has now led the armies of Israel to defeat 10,000 strong, able-bodied men. No one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and all the land had rest for now 80 years. Whenever the book of Judges would be read, and the congregation of Israel, as they would gather together to hear God's word read by the priests, and they came to the book of Judges, and they came to the stories of Ehud and men like Ehud. The people of Israel, upon hearing the story, could do nothing but stand in amazement at the absolutely unexpected and undeserved nature of their deliverance and the absolutely unexpected nature of the one that God raised up to deliver them. See, for all of its seeming kind of off-colored humor and innuendo, the beauty of this story is that this story and this deliverance and this deliverer is meant to take God's people back to the fact that their deliverance is totally undeserved, was totally unexpected, and absolutely 100% completely from the hand of God, which is why we started with the question of honesty in the very beginning. When was the last time that you found your heart standing in awe or amazement at the absolutely unexpected and undeserved nature of your deliverance and with the absolutely unexpected nature of the one God used to deliver you? When was the last time? See, friends, the, the story of God's deliverance of his people, even through a man like Ehud, it's meant to quite literally take you by the hand and pull you, not take you by the hand and, and gently and kindly lead you along, but take you by the hand and pull you back to the place where you can see for the first time or the first time in a long time just how unlikely, just how strange, just how unexpected your salvation through Christ Jesus really is. That's what God intends. So, have you considered at all, or at least in a while, that like, your, like Israel, your, your heart 
can be divided at best or completely given over to the gods of this world at worst. When was the last time you considered just all the ways that you have belittled and disrespected and offended the God who made you in his image and likeness? And yet it's this God that you've offended, this God that you've rejected, this God who you have tried in some way in your heart to compromise your commitment to, it's Him who saved you. It's He who actually saved you. Surely, if you and I are going to write the story, we're going to come up with a different narrative to achieve forgiveness. But when was the last time you truly considered the nature and the character of the love of God? A love that actually compelled the one who we continue to offend, the one we continue to reject, the one we continue to say with our lives is not sufficient or enough. When was the last time you considered his love that got up off his throne to take on flesh and save you? Honestly, when was the last time You consider the nature of your salvation. A deliverance that required the very Son of God to die in your place. Again, if we're going to write the story, it would come in a completely different way. If we're going to write the story, if I'm going to write the story, then the forgiveness that my heart craves and the deliverance that my heart needs is going to come through a system of behaviors that I can quantify. A system of behaviors and habits maybe that has a point system so that I can see where I am on a chart at all times with achieving the forgiveness and the deliverance that I'm looking for. That's how it's going to happen if it's going to be up to me to write the story. But that's not how it works. When was the last time you considered the absolutely unexpected, undeserved nature of your salvation that required the very perfect Son of God to take on flesh and to live the life that you were created by God to live on this earth, tempted in every way that you and I are? And he did it without sin. He lived a life of joy and dependence and satisfaction upon God that we were created to live. And then upon his body, he takes our sin. We want to wonder what you do with a, a story like Ehud. Why does it have to be so dirty? Climbing through the septic system to get out. Have you ever considered the dirty and the filthy nature of your salvation? A savior who took upon his flesh your filth, your sin, your utter disregard for God, the one who created you and made you? When was the last time you considered the absolutely unexpected and undeserved nature of your salvation, that he took your sin, it was placed on him, and then he took upon his body the righteous wrath of God in your place for your filth? for your disregard of God, for your salvation. Oh, it leads the Apostle Paul to go, who who are you? Romans 6, who who are you, oh man? When was the last time you considered just how undeserved this salvation really is? Listen, I know me. I know what's in here. 
I know all the darkest parts and the compromised ways that like Israel, I think I can deal with and I think I can manage and I think I can put away. And he knows me better than I know myself. And yet he looks down. He looks down and says, I'm going to save you. When was the last time you you considered the entirely undeserved nature of your salvation? How unexpected, how unlikely, how undeserved that the one who created all things, the God of infinite holiness and majesty would look down and say, I'm going to save him. I'm going to save her. I'm going to save you. And I'm going to do it at the cost of my own son's suffering and death. When was the last time you considered the absolutely unexpected and undeserved nature of that? That what we deserved was for him to look down and to see our filth, to see our sin, to see our disregard, and to find us guilty and condemn us to an eternity apart from him in conscious torment forever. When was the last time you considered the absolutely undeserved nature of your salvation. Friends, this is the glory of God's redeeming love and grace. His unexpected love. Wholly undeserved. And it makes no sense to us that the king of the universe would love you so much that he would die in your place for your sins. Friends, the book of Judges and stories of of deliverances through the hands of men like Ehud by the purpose of God is meant to lift your eyes up that you might for the first time or the first time in a long time stand utterly amazed at the unexpected and undeserved nature of your salvation and with your Savior. One writer says a, a gruesome death like the one that Christ endured for me would only be required for one who is exceedingly sinful and unable to appease a holy God. Consequently, whenever I consider the necessity and manner of his death, along with the love and selflessness behind it, I'm laid bare and utterly exposed for the sinner I am. Such an awareness of my sinfulness doesn't drag me down, but it actually serves to lift me up by magnifying my appreciation of God's forgiving grace in my life. The more I appreciate the magnitude of God's forgiveness of my sins, the more I love him and delight to show him love through heartfelt expressions of worship. God wants you to stand amazed in awe at the unexpected and undeserved nature of your salvation. Of the unexpected and undeserved nature of your Savior. He wants you to be in awe. And you see, it's, it's a people together in awe of the grace of God and the God of grace that this world longs to see. This world longs to see a people who don't just sing right things and say right things and, and live with a level of compromise in their heart. This world longs to see a people who stand in awe of the grace of their God and the God of all grace. And that in God's purposes is what he uses to see a watching world come to know him. 
As Raymond said earlier, there's nothing else that can demand an answer like that. And God intends for this awe, this amazement, and, and this wonder to be the thing that he uses to reach people who have never known or tasted the grace and the goodness of his deliverance. This morning, God is meaning through stories like Ehud to lift up the gaze of of your eyes. He's going to give us in just a moment an opportunity to remember. And you see, it's unexpected even in itself that way. I mean, not only is the nature of our salvation unexpected and the means by which God continues to cultivate an amazement and a wonder in our heart for the unexpected and undeserved nature of our salvation is actually unexpected. I mean, if you're really honest, now we expect a, a special program to cultivate this kind of awe in us. We, we look for a shamgar or an Othniel of a book to, to stir our hearts, but it's the unexpected everyday means of listening to God through his word and gathering with God's people, talking with him in prayer, and, and like we're about to do in a minute, remembering and rehearsing the news of this unexpected salvation that, that God uses to cultivate this awe and amazement in us. We think it seems to be something else. Our expectations are of something else, but The salvation that God has won for us is entirely unexpected and undeserved. The Savior that God has won the salvation for us through is completely unexpected to our own minds and the ways that God cultivates the amazement in our heart. They're they're unexpected too. And so you're gonna have a moment just to reflect and to deal with God. And in that moment, you allow God to deal with you. He's going to lift up our eyes as we set our gaze upon him. And maybe in the next couple of moments like Israel, there's something that you need to cry out to God about. Don't be like Israel. Learn from Israel. Don't wait eight years and 18 years to think that you can survive, to think that you can manage it. No, cry out to him. He's not looking for you to do something to earn his, his forgiveness, to earn his intervention, to earn his salvation and deliverance. Take the time that we have in a moment. If you need to cry out to him, to confess to him, you need to do it. And then together, the means that he's given us to remember, to rehearse and to remember the the glory and the nature of this undeserved salvation we'll do together as we take communion, remembering the body of Jesus broken in our place for our sins, his blood poured out for our forgiveness and, and our salvation. Friends, he means together for us to have our gaze lifted up that we might remember and stand amazed in his presence. Stand amazed in wonder at the nature of our salvation and stand amazed and in wonder the nature of our Savior. Let me pray for us this morning and we will respond together. Father, thank you that you don't leave us ensnared. Thank you that you don't leave us divided. Thank you that you want for us a a life of awe, a life of wonder, a life of amazement that it never grows old, it never grows tired, that the more that we find ourselves amazed and in awe with you and who you are for us in Christ and all that you have for us in Jesus, our, our hearts continue to want more and you continue to give more. This morning, Lord, our hearts are in so many different places.
Lord, we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would do what needs to be done this morning in the time that we have. It can only take a moment for you to do it. That we might find ourselves here this morning for the first time or the first time in a long time amazed. Amazed in you, in your salvation, and in who you are for us and your son. We ask that you would do this in his name, for his glory, for our joy. Amen.